0: The reading for today's sermon is from Joshua chapter 20, beginning at verse 1. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Say to the people of Israel, Appoint the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. He shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and explain his case to the elders of that city. Then they shall take him into the city and give him a place, and he shall remain with them. And if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not give up the manslayer into his hand, because he struck his neighbour unknowingly and did not hate him in the past. And he shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment, until the death of him who is high priest at that time. Then the manslayer may return to his own town and his own home, to the town from which he fled. So they set apart Kedesh in Galilee, in the hill country of Naphtali, and Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and Kiriath-Aber, Arba, is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah. And beyond the Jordan, east of the Jericho, they appointed Beza in the wilderness on the table land from the tribe of Reuben, and Ramoth in Gilead from the tribe of Gad, and Golan in Bashan from the tribe of Manasseh. These were the cities designated for all the people of Israel and for the stranger sojourning among them, that anyone who killed a person without intent could flee there, so that he might not die by the hand of the avenger of blood till he stood before the congregation." Let's pray, shall we? Merciful and gracious God, we come before you once again humbled, though scarcely enough to be called your children. And grateful that you have spoken to us, not leaving us in the dark, but have opened wide your mouth just as you opened wide your arms to welcome us in the Lord Jesus Christ. So speak by that word, we pray that living word, our Lord Jesus, about whom these written words testify, that we might be conformed into his likeness by the grace of the Spirit who dwells within us. Have mercy on us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please take a seat and let me add my welcome to that given earlier, especially to those of you who are with us for the first time. We've got a few visitors here today, it being Reformation Sunday, and it's wonderful to have you with us. I want to speak to you today about the Reformation. Today is Reformation Sunday. Well, it's almost Reformation Day. Reformation Day is tomorrow, the 31st of October, which marks the day in 1517, 505 years ago nearly, on which Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. His protests... Theological and pastoral objections to the practices of the medieval Catholic Church, and particularly the practice of requiring indulgences more on that later. little did he know that he was just one cog in a massive machine, and the early stages of, wit, of a movement that came to be known as the Reformation, a concerted an international effort to roll back the errors of medieval Catholicism and return to the ancient teaching of the church fathers and the scriptures. And today I want to explore the meaning of the Reformation. I, I want to preach in a way that's slightly different from normal. Uh, I'm going to get to Joshua 20, but only briefly at the end of what I want to say today. I want to approach this subject in a more thematic sense. And try and explore the topics that ought to occupy our minds on a day such as this, and we will get to Joshua 20, but don't worry, when we get there, what you've just listened to won't have been the introduction, that will have been most of it, because we can all smell that wonderful smoked meat from the other room, and um, again, as we'll see, it is a reformation principle to go down and celebrate the goodness of God. And really, I want us to understand our heritage. I want us to understand who we are. I want visitors here today to understand who on earth we are. (laughs) What does it mean to be a church in the communion of reformed evangelical churches? Well, today I want to try and shed some light on that. So what was the Reformation, so-called, really about? It was a a movement that lasted well over a century, uh, really aimed at rediscovering the Bible and its teaching. The church had drifted. In the medieval period, the medieval Catholic Church had drifted from its biblical moorings. And although there had been some great theologians in the medieval period, Thomas Aquinas and others like him, at street level, in actual people's lives, the religion of the church had long ceased, since ceased to resemble anything that might be scriptural. And so the reformers were determined to recapture the teaching of the Bible. So what does it mean to honour that? Well... It means to familiarise ourselves with the many different strands of what it was that the Reformers rediscovered, and to ask ourselves, how shall we honour their memory? How shall we walk in their footsteps? And I want to articulate for you initially three, and then a fourth strand of what the Reformation was really all about before in the fourth strand getting to Joshua chapter 20. So what was the Reformation about? It was, firstly, a theological revolution. Most obviously, the Reformers discovered the theology of the Scriptures, rediscovered it, rather. My favourite cameo of this is from um, the White Horse Inn in Cambridge, England. You might have some suspicion why this is one of my favourite cameos of the Reformation. Where such luminaries as Thomas Cranmer and Hugh Latimer and Miles Coverdale and William Tyndale, who were at this time young men, men in their thirties, in their early thirties, sat around in the evenings reading the Greek text of the Scriptures, newly published by the great humanist Erasmus, and they discovered, to their absolute astonishment, that the Bible didn't say almost any of the things that the medieval Catholic Church had been telling them that it said. Imagine. And it is worth remembering that the Reformation began in a pub. (laughs) It's not that it should only take place there. What was that whoop from somebody? But interesting, again, we'll come to that later. Um, One of the things the Reformers discovered was the goodness of the gifts of God, including the beer they drank as they read the Gospels and the letters of the New Testament and discovered the wonders hidden there for ages and generations. Of course, it was aided in God's providence by um, the invention of the printing press by Gutenberg in the 15th century, but what happened really over the decades that followed uh, Luther and one or two of his predecessors, there was this explosion of passion for the truth of the scriptures, which meant not just Bibles, but theological books and tracts and writings, all trying to show people for the first time what they had not known, that God is a gracious and loving and merciful God and opens wide his arms to welcome them in Christ. And the writings, I mean, it was just... I I was looking up how much the Reformers actually wrote. Luther wrote 120 different works of theology, 120 books. He had to to write a book um, uh, to um at one point he argued that um uh the the darkness of the clouds of the reformation had got so great that people needed him to write a book entitled may soldiers be saved such was the confusion we'll come to that in a few minutes time um, luther translated the bible into german you know, he did it. It took him 11 weeks to translate the entire Bible, the, the entire New Testament, into German. I'm, I'm thinking about this for some of you Greek students. So I did some maths some of you high school students. Um, that's about, um, I think it's 1,800 words a day. I don't know what your homework is normally. Um, you know, you get, like, somebody gives you, like, one sentence, and you take about an hour over it, and Luther translated the entire New Testament in less than three months. And you went on and on and on. Because people needed to know, for the first time in history, people f- people had access to the scriptures and to the truth of God's word for themselves. It produced a- astonishing changes, cultural changes, in England again. Where and I talk about England not just because I'm British, but because actually the Reformation period in England was quite well documented. That literacy rates went from five percent in 1475 to over fifty percent nationally in 1650 and that's nationally men and women in in pockets it was much higher than that in a century and a half it went from basically nobody could read to basically everybody could read and the things that they were reading were bibles and sermons and tracts and books and anything that would take them deeper into that which we are so tempted to take for granted here we are a few hundred years later heirs of the reformers, of people who died for this stuff. And we carry in our hands treasures of which they dared not dream. So how do we honour the spirit of the Reformation? Well, isn't it obvious the first way to honour the spirit of the Reformation is to plunge into these riches, to find the God who is and was during the Reformation period hidden there, and is now for us to be discovered. I put out a, a, a Bible reading survey, didn't I, a few a couple of weeks ago? I wanted, I wanted to get to grips with what your Bible reading habits are. I made it anonymous because the point wasn't to name and shame anybody, but I wanted Pastor Neil and myself to to know how we can help and encourage you. I was actually really encouraged. Uh, it was uh, almost a hundred. Um, Adults have responded to the survey, and that's a good proportion of the adults who are members of the congregation, because we've got so many kids, you know, 300 people, but there's only about 100 and something adults. And it's been really encouraging to see how uh, you are devoted to the Word of God, assuming you're telling the truth. (laughs) I mean, and and at the same time, it's been really uh, helpful and encouraging to to discover, you know, there's some, some folks who are struggling with this, you know. Once or twice a week, five minutes of Bible is not, you're not going to discover the grace of God like that. A church that wants to discover the grace of God needs to be a church that's soaked in the Word. So um, there'll be some follow up and some resources to try and help you all from wherever you are to grow in your understanding and your love for the scriptures in your own reading. Because it was a theological revolution that took place. Second, the Reformation was a liturgical revolution. I've spoken about this. Um, once or twice before but I want to talk about it in a bit more detail at street level immediately in places like England and actually to a lesser extent or different ways in Germany and France the experience of worshipping God on the Lord's day was utterly transformed in some places almost overnight by the Reformation. In the medieval church, basically, it was a kind of bizarre spectacle, and spectacle is really what it is, because you guys didn't come to participate. What happened was there was a vast clouds of incense everywhere that you couldn't see through, and you certainly couldn't see through the wooden screen at the back of the building. So where we've got like the, the windows and the door right there, well, that would all be blocked off. And Pastor Neil and I would do our business over here in Latin, looking that way, and you guys would come and you'd kind of peer through little holes in the so-called rude screen, not R-U-D-E, it's R-O-O-D, rude screen, you would watch us worshipping God as we murmured through our Latin rituals that not even we understood. Did you enjoy church today? Of course not, it was just, it was a bizarre thing. In the Reformation all that changed and in places where it's well documented, in England it was well documented, and of course remember the people who settled in America, were settling because they wanted to continue the reformation that had started so wonderfully in england Uh, in 1549 with the publication of um, one of the books of common prayer there a whole bunch of different editions but the book of common prayer in 1549 basically overnight it changed what you did so the service was in english and the congregation participated with prayers and singing and there were scripture readings in English that you could understand. And the Lord's Supper was shared. And you got to eat. And the priest had to preach a sermon. Now that posed some problems, because all these priests, who, most, some of them weren't even converted. So uh, Thomas Cranmer, when he became Archbishop, he's faced with this problem of, like, how do I get there to be sermons in the churches when the, the preachers are so useless? And so he wrote a bunch of sermons. He just wrote these books of homilies, so-called. And he said, look, read this bunch of useless priests, and so we can train some more, basically, and so he started off these theological training initiatives, and in the meantime, you lose a medieval Catholic, so do what you're told, do it in English, and read this out, so I thought, I bet, I, I bet um, Cranmer's never preached from this pulpit, so I thought, until now, have you ever heard any of Cranmer's homily, homilies? Let me read you it. they're quite long, but don't worry, I'm only going to read a short extract from the conclusion of the third homily on the salvation of mankind, now imagine, all you've ever known is coming to a place that you're frightened of but you're more frightened to stay away from because of purgatory and all that kind of horrible stuff that your grandparents are in you think wrongly and therefore you're doing whatever it takes to pray to get them out of those torments and you come to church and you hate it and you're frightened of it and suddenly you've got a guy standing up saying therefore to conclude considering the infinite benefits of god who hath given us his own son to suffer most shameful and painful death for our offenses to the intent to justify us and to restore us to life everlasting so making us also his dear children brethren unto his only son and savior our savior jesus christ and heirs forever with him of his eternal kingdom of heaven you'd have been like what in the world is this and the answer of course is it's jesus for you it would have been a complete revolution in your experience of life and worship as a christian so how do we embrace and honor the spirit of the reformation well i'm always tremendously encouraged some of you guys who sit there at the back should come and sit in the front sometimes and just don't all do it at once because it would be awkward for all kinds of reasons and but at the end of the hymns, don't say amen, just listen. Occasionally, I, I allow myself to do that. I mean, if we all did it all the time, it would be, it would be um, well, we wouldn't get an amen, would we? But what we get is an amen. If I was Garrett Craw, I'd say, can I get an amen? Amen. Well, that's pathetic. You know, that's first week after the Reformation. But it's just wonderful. Honestly, it's lovely. And I hope... I mean, um, uh, visitors, those of you who are here like just for the first time today, we're not putting this on for you. It's one of the things that my family and I really were struck by when we came to visit you all in 2018, and we were considering the move here and all the implications of that. We never had any thoughts, yeah, they're not really very enthusiastic about worship, are they? It's, it's a wonderful thing. But actually, it goes further than that, because this is why the Reformers and their Puritan successors over the 16th and 17th centuries were so passionate about not just worship, but the whole of the Lord's Day. We can get the Lord's Day so wrong, you know? We can start thinking of the Lord's Day as, so Sunday is the day when I'm basically not allowed to do a bunch of stuff that I like doing. <laughs> and so we think of it as a you know, sort of divine bunch of restrictions. You know, dominical killjoy Jesus tells us all the things that we must not enjoy when we gather to worship him and then go home or go to the fellowship hall afterwards. And it's a shame, because that's actually not how the Puritans and the Reformers thought of the Sabbath at all. They called it the Sabbath most, most of the time. I think it's better called the Lord's Day. The Sabbath normally refers to the Jewish Saturday. Better off calling it the Lord's Day. The Puritans called the Lord's Day the market day for the soul. Now, to understand what that means, you've got to understand a little bit about late medieval Europe. Market day was the best day of the week or of the month. It was the day when there was... New things to do and exciting things to see. And you're normally boring and turgid and slightly damp because it's always raining and foggy and misty village in northern Germany somewhere. Market day was the day that all the kids looked forward to. It would be the day where there'd be things to buy and fresh fruit and vegetables, if your dad had the money to buy it, and occasionally treats and games and all kinds of fun things that you could do because the fair would come into town with the market. And so the market day was the day of excitement and celebration and rejoicing. And the, the Puritans are, Searching around for an image to convey to their congregations, like what is the laws they all about? It's like, well, it's the market day for the soul, not meaning the kind of disembodied spirit soul. Market day for the whole of the human person. Market day for all of us, body and soul, in our relationship with God and with His people. It's a yeah. So so you cease from work. Like yeah, obviously you're gonna. Obviously, you're not going to do your shopping on the Lord's Day. Obviously, you're not going to be uh, going to Starbucks on the Lord's Day, because why would you want to make somebody else work as well? But the reason you're doing it is so that you're clearing space, so that you can fill this day with the goodness for which it's designed. Confession, confession to make here. Pastor Neil and I were planning, or talking about planning the Reformation celebration a few weeks ago. And... um, I came up with a bunch of suggestions, and they were mostly OK suggestions or reasonably good suggestions. And like, so previous years, we've done a Saturday event, and we had a, like a little mini-conference and a meal, and we have a celebration meal on Sunday or something. And Pastor Neil, it's like he sees things so clearly. <laughs> it's really funny. He said, yeah, it is supposed to be a Reformation celebration. <laughs> so I thought, you know, can I get a face palm? yeah, from me. Be- and, so he's, I, I, we started, he got all this stuff from his study, and, well, here's all the stuff we've done in previous years, and I noticed it's all celebration, rejoicing, celebration, uh, activities that are enjoyable, having a celebratory meal together, spending time together. Now, it's not that teaching is a bad idea. I mean, the Puritans thought that a two-hour sermon was a bit cheap, and really, they'd been sold short. So I'm planning to remedy that in the coming year. We, but, but, what, but at the same time, they... They were rejoicing in the goodness of the living God. So, so this is why I'm saying all this. When we conclude our worship here and we go down to the fellowship hall, that's not something disconnected from our identity as a church. That's what reformed Christians do. All that smoked brisket, all those wonderful roasted vegetables, and some of you carrying, like, even the salads looked amazing. <laughs> Sorry, I know salad is amazing. Personally, I'm a guy, so brisket and meat and stuff, but, but, but that's part of what it means to be an heir of the Reformation. And so genuinely, like some of you are visiting today and you're thinking, oh, I'm not really sure about this. Please, give us a chance. Give us a chance to show you how much we are grateful for the living God and his kindness to us and how much we're thrilled to be able to share with you some of the blessings he's given us so stick around just grab even if you can't stick around for long stick around for half an hour grab a pile of smoked meat and take it home with you better off stay with us and eat so it was a liturgical transformation transformation in people's christian lives but then it wasn't just sunday that was transformed the whole of the rest of the week was transformed because the reformation was thirdly a vocational revolution again i've talked about this before in lots of different contexts especially with the men in relation to the, the doctrine of vocation and their work but i want to tell everybody when you ought to understand what's changed about how you should think of your monday through friday or monday through saturday labor with the opening of the church's eyes in the 16th and 17th centuries before the reformation basically there were holy callings And then there were unholy callings. Holy callings, monk, priest, possibly nun. Unholy callings, everything else. Blacksmith, shoemaker, housewife, farmer, tanner, weaver, all the the things that are kind of the late middle age and early modern period equivalent of what all you guys spend your time doing, that's unholy. You know, Pastor Neil and I have a holy calling to, to pray and to be in the Word and to be preaching. But you guys, well, before the Reformation, not preaching and not really being in the Word. But you get the point. But you guys, you know, God, God isn't really interested in what you guys have to say. Now, what that generated was this mistaken notion that in order to be really sold out for Jesus, what you have to do is to stop running your company or stop being... A housewife, stop being a housewife and become a nun, um, stop, stop doing your business, computer, computer programming or selling insurance or whatever it is you do, and enter the ministry if you're good enough, which you're probably not. So basically, nothing you do, nothing you could do would ever be adequate. Now, what did the reformers say? They insisted every lawful calling provides a context to serve God. God loves a faithful. Insurance salesman. Actually, we all love a faithful insurance. No, don't, I don't want to insurance salesman here. That wasn't at all aimed at you, it was aimed at all your competition. Um, God loves, God is honored by the faithful service of a mum or a dad or a school teacher or a computer programmer or somebody who fixes roofs on houses. And I've quoted before from Julian Hardyman's interesting and wonderful little book, Glory Days. He, he digs up a bunch of quotes from the Reformers. You know, one of the things that um, William Tyndale was burned at the stake for was this, quote, There is no work better than another to please God. To pour water, to wash dishes, to be a shoemaker, or to be an apostle is all one. To wash dishes and to preach is all one as touching the deed to please God. He's burned at the stake by the medieval Catholic Church for that, among other things. You can see why the Reformers wanted to clear that out of the way. William Perkins, a later English Puritan, The action of a shepherd in keeping sheep is as good a work before God as the action of a judge in giving sentence or of a magistrate in ruling or as a minister, the other kind of shepherd, in preaching. And Luther gets in on the act, because Luther always gets in on the act, um, it looks like a small thing when a maid cooks and cleans and does other housework. Luther is actually, for all his kind of rumbustiousness and um, forcefulness, he's remarkably pastoral. Actually, he—I mean—he had his angry moments and he had his actual, actually regrettable moments theologically, but he's actually remarkably pastoral, because he knows that it looks like a small thing when a maid cooks, doesn't it? It looks like a small thing in our culture when a mum says, well, I'm not going to go and pursue the career for which I did my degree, because what I really always wanted to do anyway was to be a mum, and here I have this precious little thing, these little bouncy things bouncing on your lap. This is more precious, and it looks like a small thing, and Luther's like, yes, it does look like a small thing, but because God's command is there, even such small work must be praised As a service of god far surpassing the holiness and asceticism of all monks and nuns so can you see the the perspective that you're being invited to embrace everything we do every thing is to please god and of course that then raises tremendous challenges if we're going to take that seriously how do we embrace the spirit of the Reformation. If your housework and child rearing and diaper changing and selling insurance and selling secondhand cars and computer programming and building and everything else—if that is all to be done to honour God—and God is looking expectantly on the sacrifice, the living sacrifice of your life—well, how are you are to do it? And can you imagine the moment when they were uh, in the White Horse Inn and Cranmer and... Latimer, and so on, they turn to Colossians chapter 3, and they discover it says, slaves, it doesn't say, there's nothing you could ever do to please God, because you're not a monk, or a nun, or a priest, or a bishop. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, wonderful literal rendering of the Greek, not just because your boss's eye is on you as a man-pleaser, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. So how do you honour the spirit of the Reformation? You, you leap out of bed on Monday morning. There's, there's nothing that can hold you back. You're so filled with this blazing passion to sell insurance? Yes. To honour the living God who accepts as a sacrifice of praise from your hands that work which he's given you to do that's how we honor the spirit of the reformation we will be more fully reformed when we embrace with that blazing passion everything all your latin homework all of it and your math homework and especially your theology homework for me okay but not really especially your theology homework because Your math homework and your physics homework and your geography essay and your history presentation and everything you're doing, you teenagers, everything is an opportunity for us to honour the living God who accepts those things as sacrifices pleasing to him. Now, all of that, theological revolution, revolution in church, revolution out there in the world, all contributed to one final aspect of the revolution that was the Reformation. I want to spend the rest of our time on this. This is where we're going to get to Joshua 20 in a couple of minutes. I don't think this is emphasised nearly enough. But the Reformation was a transformation of personal Christian experience. Personal experience of relationship with God. Our relationships, I'm afraid to say, are so... Uh, distorted by our own misperceptions of them, and particularly our own misperceptions of ourselves. And so it was in the relationship, quote-unquote, that people had with God in the medieval period, which was to say not really any relationship at all. And what the Reformation brought to light was the triumph of grace. That is to say, the a, a tidal wave of assurance that god reaches out his arms to you and welcomes and accepts you sinner that you are because he's kind and merciful and he loves you and he wants to welcome you and the experience of living through that period would have been I, I was going to read Luther's account of his conversion, but I ran out of, well, maybe I haven't run out of time, but I left my notes upstairs, so I thought I would have run out of time. But read Luther's account of his conversion. You find it online somewhere. Use the internet for something useful. It's just unbelievable when you discover that's what one man went through, been trying everything to placate an angry God. And then he discovered what, in Romans 1, it means by the righteousness of God being revealed. It doesn't mean that God's righteous demand is revealed and smashed over the head like a sledgehammer it's the righteousness of god It's his saving grace those who by faith are righteous shall live he discovered which is what it said all along had only his eyes been open to it the most egregious consequences of this were that the christian life before the reformation was a miserable experience of guilt And fear, which was fostered by the medieval Catholic rituals of penance and indulgences and confession, an old pile of other extra-biblical rituals. You all know about indulgences? So basically what... This is a great idea if you're trying to raise money to build a massive church in Rome. What you do is you say that all your relatives who've died are in the fires of purgatory. And they could remain there for thousands of years... But, if you just pay me some money, then I can give you this document, which is a letter from the Pope, which guarantees that your poor late grandfather will be released from purgatory immediately and enter paradise. That's exactly what Johannes Tetzel did, all over northern Germany. He was raising money for St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, and also to pay off his boss's debts, which is just, just... corruption of the medieval catholic church has to be read about to be believed and so thousands and hundreds of thousands of peasants all over northern germany gave their life savings and he used to go around there's a little german phrase he used which roughly translated into english it goes as soon as the coin in the coffer clings the soul from purgatory springs and people were set free from that fear by the recognition there is no such place as purgatory, and if I trust in Jesus, I'll be saved, because the Bible says so, because he loves me. And the interesting thing is, if you, I, I was thinking about this in the last few days, I had a couple of conversations with people that really brought this home to me. The medieval practice of requiring indulgences traded on a deep-seated emotional vulnerability in the human spirit. We are highly vulnerable to guilt and we still are and that's what the medieval catholic church exploited to create this sense of fear which would cause people to give up their life savings to try and rescue their great aunt because they were so fearful because they knew their guilt and they didn't know god's grace and i think it's i'm afraid to say um, we are still some people not all to the same extent but there are some people here some of you are plagued by a deep-seated emotional anxiety, a sense of guilt, a sense that you're not worthy, a sense that God could never accept me. I'm not good enough. Other people are so spiritual, but I'm just like, not. And those feelings of inadequacy and self-worth don't just pervade your relationship with God. They pervade all your other relationships as well. So I know this is just an inescapable feature of the human psyche we ought to feel guilty for our sin but we find it so hard to recognize grace and especially when in pre-reformation Europe it's being stolen from you by the church that is hiding it from you but many of us even in reformed churches still inhabit that space of I just can't believe that I'm good enough and the truth is you're not good enough of course you're not good enough but you're welcomed anyway And the Reformation was the rediscovery of the astonishing grace and kindness of God. And you find it all over the Bible, and you even find hints of it, I told you we'd get there, in Joshua chapter 20. Give me two minutes, and I'll show you where we find it here. In Joshua chapter 20, I've got to turn back to it, we're in the section of Joshua where the different inheritances in the land are being allocated to different tribes. And here you find some specific cities being identified for a particular purpose. The so-called cities of refuge. Look with me at verse 1. The Lord said to Joshua, Say to the people of Israel, Appoint the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses. What's the city of refuge for? Well, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. Now, just, I need to explain what's going on here. The the justice system of ancient Israel, Israel required that certain crimes were capital crimes. Murder, premeditated murder was a capital crime, warranting the death penalty. And the person who would be appointed to carry out the sentence was a close relative, here described as the avenger of blood. It's elsewhere described as a kinsman redeemer. There's a whole bunch of complexity in the background there. But basically, that person would carry out the sentence against a murderer. But there were some offences that were not capital offences. Certainly not everything was a capital crime. And one of them, chapter 20, verse 3, is accidental killing. Now, there are many ways in which this could have arisen. Deuteronomy 19 gives an example. If you're chopping down a tree and the axe head flies off and hits your co-worker and, and he dies, like the tragedy of that situation... But that's not, that's not deliberate, that's accidental, that's without intent. So that, you, if, if that happens to you, I mean, you might feel absolutely terrible. Can you imagine, even inadvertently causing an accident like that, you will be racked with guilt, and you will be racked with fear that the kinsman redeemer might take advantage of this, and in his anger, come after you and execute you. And why not? Because, I mean, you know, people's anger sometimes t- takes over and all kinds of bad things happened. So the Lord built into Israel's justice system a place for you to flee, a place for you to hide. So verse 3, they shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. Verse 4, so what you do, if, if imagine something like that's happened. What you do, verse 4, you go to one of the cities and you stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and you explain your case to the elders and they're like, okay, so this was an accident. Yes, it was. Okay, well then in that case come in and you remain there, and if the avenger of blood comes, oh, where is he? Where's the one who killed my brother? It was an accident, and you may not come in, because he is to be protected until such time, verse 5, sorry, verse 6, until he stood before the congregation for judgment, to be declared, you know, you're righteous, it's fine, now we all know, okay, and so there's no death sentence on this guy, and if you chase after him, then you're guilty of murder, so that's a pretty strong disincentive. Until, verse 6, the death of him who is high priest at the time. So you can see how it would work. Now, underlying this is a simple yet profoundly important truth. There are many things for which a man might condemn you. The avenger of blood might condemn you because you accidentally killed his brother, but the Lord won't condemn you. Great is the wrath of man, And sometimes great is the guilt that we feel for the careless and stupid and sometimes even worse, downright ungodly things we've done, but great is the mercy of God that he builds into the fabric of Israel's inheritance a place for you to be safe. (laughs) And it almost makes you laugh, doesn't it? Until the death of the high priest. (laughs) So what we really want, if we could arrange for there to be a high priest who died... That'd be interesting, wouldn't it? Now, obviously, in Israel's history, it's just the high priest, and then the person goes free. But can you see how this text pictures the grace of Christ? So there's our forefathers, our Reformation forebears, rooting through the Bible. And they find the grace of God in Joshua chapter 20. They find here a provision for a man who has done something which is really bad, and maybe it was foolish, maybe it was careless, but to go free. So imagine Cranmer again, standing up and telling you of the infinite mercy of God who gave his own son to suffer the most shameful and painful death for our offences, the high priest to die, so that you may be set free. Enough with this guilt. Enough with this I'm not good enough. Enough with these irrelevant questions. When the Lord has set apart a city of refuge and the Lord has sent us a high priest who has died. Let's pray together. Merciful Father, we thank and praise you for your astonishing grace. And we confess that sometimes our lack of trust in you takes the form of self-reproach and anxiety and guilt that we just can't bring ourselves to believe that you're as kind as you truly are. And so we thank you that we have this day to experience and celebrate again your infinite goodness to us. In Jesus' name, amen.